Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Rereading the first eight verses and then continuing on with verse 9. Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great, uh, great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass, and the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sargis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, which means a very large oyster. 
And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The eternal presence of God with his people. And the Lord is particularly interested in his people seeing the majesty and the glory of this city, this new Jerusalem. The timing of this entrance of the city onto the earth will be following the millennium. Following the 1,000-year reign of Christ, the new Jerusalem shall come down from God, from heaven, to the earth. And this will be the eternal dwelling place after this present heaven and this present earth are dissolved and replaced with the new heaven and the new earth which God will create. And God is interested in showing us what this city is like, the glory of it. Not so that we can be enamored with the details of the city as much as we can be enamored with Him. Because it's His glory that makes this city bright and light and and attractive and, and so compelling for us to live there. It's His glory and His presence that makes us want to live in this new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever without end. The city is a reflection of the God that we love and we serve. And it displays and shows off his nature and his character. That's why the city is so glorious. And that's why the city is so great. And it's a picture of the bride of Christ. Being as beautiful to God and as beautiful to us as the bride of Christ is to the Son of God. That's the comparison and that's the picture. And reading this chapter and going through it and meditating on these verses, what it does is is it produces a tremendous amount of hope within believers of all ages. Not only that, it provides a tremendous basis for encouragement when going through very difficult times. Because this is time, that is eternity. This lasts but a short period of time, that is forever and ever. Hope is a tremendous result. Strength in the time of very difficult circumstances. And not only that, it compels us to be worshipers of God. God the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. He's not interested that we worship Him only in spirit, but He's interested that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. That our worship of God is right, that it's real, that it's based on something real and tangible and, and is representative of himself and corresponds to everything that we know that is real and true. That's the kind of worship that God is looking for. But he's also looking for worship that will be in spirit. Our hearts are in it. 
Our wills are engaged therein. Our passion is inflamed. The Spirit of God is connecting with our human spirits and making that worship alive unto God. And it allows us to give all of our lives to Him. Everything. Everything to Him. Our possessions, our time, our talents, everything can be given to Him if we'll worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship Him in these ways. Therefore, this city becomes a great impetus, a great encouragement to do just that, to worship God as He is with all of our lives. We used to sing the old campfire song, uh, And the things of earth shall grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. How true that is. In the light of the New Jerusalem and the glories of the New Jerusalem, The stuff that we see on this planet, dim, 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 dull, boring even, compared to what God provides for us in his kingdom and in the worship of God. So it's a fascinating chapter and very exciting to study and to ponder. So the section, the revelation of the New Jerusalem in verse 9 begins with, the statement of one of these seven angels that had the seven bowls, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. In verse 12, we uh, are also told that John has shown the great city of Jerusalem. So the bride, the lamb's wife, is connected to this great city of Jerusalem. Now some have thought that that means that the new Jerusalem is a symbolic city, not an actual and literal place at all that it's only a symbol of the Bride of Christ. I think that is too narrow of an interpretation because there is so much literalness in connection with so many other passages of Scripture dealing with this city. In Hebrews 11 particularly, it tells us about Abraham, the great father of our faith, the great patriarch Abraham, that he looked for this city, which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was waiting for a literal city to be built by God himself without human hands, and he wanted to live there. That was what drove him. That's what kept him going through all those years of trial, waiting upon God that he experienced. So therefore, it is a literal city. And numerous Bible passages support the idea of an eternal, literal city. It's called the bride, the wife of the lamb, because it is the place where all of God's people are gathered, as David Guzik points out in his commentary. And this puts us in awe of the beauty of the bride because of the beauty of this city. And just as in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, the man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of the man, so also the bride is the glory of the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking in this city, we are seeing the glory of Jesus. More than we'll ever see it in any other way, we're seeing the glory of Jesus because of the beauty of this city which he has made. John was shown this city, verse 10, He was carried away in the spirit. He was lifted up to a great and high mountain, and he was shown this great city. And John was the first human to see anything like this. No one has ever seen anything like this. 
And then John comes back and begins to describe in writing and in written form what he saw. I can imagine how difficult it must have been for him to try to put in written words the things that he saw because no one ever has seen this kind of glory. Paul the Apostle describes himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and he said that 13 years earlier he knew a man in Christ whether he was in the body or out of the body he wasn't sure but he was caught up into the third heaven and heard inexpressible words which would be unlawful to repeat. He's referring to himself. He's referring to an experience that Paul the Apostle evidently had probably during the time in which he was stoned in Lystra, Acts chapter 14. And during that time, he actually died. His spirit left his body and was caught up into the third heaven, and the Lord allowed him to hear things there that if he came back and tried to explain what he heard, he said it would be unlawful for me to do it. It was so glorious. It was so amazing. It was so wonderful. But just like with Paul, that revelation came back uh, with him once he was resuscitated, and it enabled him to go on. You think of the sufferings that Paul the Apostle went through after he had had those visions and revelations of the Lord. The things that he suffered after those visions and revelations the shipwrecked experiences, the beating, the enduring long periods of time in prison, being chained to Roman guards, horrendous suffering. But that vision that he'd had of the Lord enabled him to endure the suffering that he experienced. And so it is with us. And so it it was for first century believers. You know, the thing that we need as believers, is we need better memories. We do. But it's, it's, a, it's the need for a better memory, and we have something to do with that. The great Bible commandment, remember. It's repeated so many times in the scripture. Remember. And we're not really recollecting things that are brand new. They've already been revealed to us. They're they're things that we've known for a long time. Uh, As John Corson says, if it's true, it's not new, and if it's new, it's not true. And I like that. But these are things that we've known. These are things that have been revealed. These are things we just need to rescue from their slumber of memories past. We need to recall them. We need to force ourselves to remember and discipline our minds to remember truth. And when we do, we're strengthened. That's why we receive communion on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings. We receive communion because it's a remembrance of what Jesus did for us at the the cross in his broken body and in his shed blood. So John was shown the great city. And then the city was described in verse 11b all the way through verse 21. The first thing we'll make note of is that the light of the city was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone. The equivalent today, perhaps, would be a beautifully set diamond. They didn't have diamond cutters in John's day, and so a diamond couldn't be used as an example. 
but a beautifully set diamond that is reflecting the light that is all around it. That's what this city is like. That's what the color of this city and the light of this city is like. Like a clear and beautifully set diamond. And just imagine how stunning the light of that city would be. And then we see in verse 12 that there are the gates of the city. And there are three on each side, the south, north, east, and west, 12 of them, which leads us to the understanding or the noticing of the fact that the number 12 is prominent in this passage. There are 12 gates. There are 12 tribes. There are 12 angels at the gates. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles. There is 12,000 furlongs. There are 144 cubits, 12 times 12. The number 12 is prominent because it's the number of divine government and order. And all the way through this city, everywhere you look, you see evidences of the divine order and of the divine government, the rule of God over the things of eternity. The foundations of the city, verse 12, had written on them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now we know that today the church has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The whole body of Christ, God designed it to be built upon an indelible and permanent and strong foundation. The twelve apostles along with the prophets who pointed to what they said. That's what the church is is built upon, and Jesus is the cornerstone, the most important piece of all, of course, the chief shepherd. And the church, having been founded on the apostles and the prophets, is intended to grow upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Just imagine what's happening sometimes in churches today. Imagine the church being built upon a foundation. Let's just say the foundation is over there on that side of the room. And the foundation, the entire basis of the foundation is apostles and prophets. And then someone comes along and says, well, I want to be a pastor of a church. And me and my leadership team, we're going to build a church. And we're going to raise up its ministries. And so they go over there and they create their own foundation made out of programs or made out of concepts that perhaps aren't biblical? What's going on here? Why didn't they build on that? That's what needs to be built on. And as Guzik suggests, if a congregation isn't built upon the foundation of the apostles, it's not any place for God's people. And where do we find the foundation of the apostles? We find it in the 66 books of the Bible, particularly the 27 books of the New Testament. There it is. We want to be not like the early church. We want to be like the apostolic church. There's a difference. The apostolic church is the church of Acts chapter 2 through uh, Acts chapter, well, the whole book, really, of Acts, the apostolic church. That church that devoted themselves. This was their passion. This is what they were about. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They evangelized everywhere they went and they were completely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do whatever they did. That's the story of the early church. 
If we can get those six things into our hearts and lives as a body of believers here, we'll be exactly what the Lord wants us to be. Devoting ourselves to the teaching of Scripture. Loving it. Excited about Bible study. Man, I can't wait to get into the Word again. Privately, on my own, at home, and also publicly in environments like this, or for uh, perhaps from house to house. Devoting ourselves to fellowship. Sharing of our lives with one another. Devoting ourselves to prayer. Really taking prayer seriously. Devoting ourselves to the breaking of bread. Loving one another through the whole process. We do those simple things. We are functioning like the apostolic church, which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I read a quote this week that talked about many American Christians. Many American Christians worship their work. They work at their play and they play at their worship. Think about it. It's true. Work is the all-consuming passion of so many. And then to try to get some kind of respite and break from the tedium of work, we work hard at our play. And we become exhausted in our play. And then we come to church wanting to be entertained We play at our worship. Whereas we actually need to work at our work, and we need to worship at our worship, and we need to play at our play. It's good to play. It's good to work. And it's wonderful to worship. And let's keep them all in the direction that they need to be. Built upon the foundation of the apostles. So the gates of the city, with the foundations with the names of the twelve apostles. And then we go down to looking at the size of the city. This angel had a golden reed. And this city was going to be used to measure the city, the gates, and the wall. Now how large was this city? Well, it was 12,000 furlongs or 12,000 stadia, which is approximately 1,380 miles. Each side, 1,380 miles. The length and the height and the breadth are the same. So in every direction, 1,380 miles. Now, there have been some discussion as to whether or not this is a city that is a cube or if this city is more pyramidic in structure. I don't think it's like a pyramid because that would mean that the size of the city at the top of the city is not... 1,380 miles. It seems to be, to me, the language of a cube. And if you look at the size of the city compared with a map of the continental United States, that's how large this city is. You go up into Canada, far up into the northern part of Alberta, go all the way down to the southernmost part of California, head all the way over to the Gulf of Mexico and Texas, and then all the way up uh, into, what is that, Uh, Michigan, northern Michigan, the Upper Peninsula, that square is the size of the base of this city, and then it goes up the same size. So how large is that? (laughs) You, You need to talk to Manny Barron about that. He did some calculations because he was curious, and using his engineering mind, 
he came up with a fascinating uh, uh, set of conclusions. But Dr. Henry Morris, in his excellent commentary, The Revelation Record, he put out some possibilities. Just, you know, postulating a guess that by the time the New Jerusalem comes into existence, there will have been a hundred billion people in the human race. Let's just be generous and say that 20% of those 100 billion people that will have lived in the human race are saved. Well, those 20%, which would mean 20 billion people within a city of that size, which has already disappeared, where'd it go? It's the eternal city. (laughs) A city of that size would have enough room so that each person could have a block of about 75 acres per person. That's a huge amount of volume inside of this gigantic cube of this city. It's a fantastic place, and it's going to be glorious to see it. So the size of the city, the wall of the city, verse 17, 144 cubits. A cubit was anywhere from 18 to 22 inches. So let's just take the 18-inch measurement of the cubit. That would make the wall being 216 feet thick. That's how thick the wall is to support uh, itself in the circumference of the city. Very, very large wall. Very, very thick wall. And the wall is constructed, verses 18 through 21, with these various construction materials and uh, the adornment of these particular uh, materials, all these various kinds of stones and gems and so on. Now the question would be, is this city too incredible to be a literal city? I mean, it stretches the mind, doesn't it? A city that large, A city with that much beauty, a city with that much radiance to it, the city with that much uh, valuable uh, stones and construction materials. Is this city too incredible to be literal? And if anybody asks that question, my question to them in response would be, well, look at the universe. Is the universe too incredible to be real? And the answer is no, it's not too incredible to be real. The universe explains and manifests the glory of God, doesn't it? So if God can do all that he's done in creating a universe, which we are still trying to figure out how large it really is, and how massive it is, then can't God make a city like the New Jerusalem to come down from himself to the earth for an eternal domain for his people? And the answer, of course, is of course God could do that. Notice also that the construction materials of this city are rare and precious gems and stones. Each of these, of course, very valuable in any present-day economy anywhere in the world. Beautiful stones and metals, precious and so often way too important to us here. But God uses these as the construction materials 
of the New Jerusalem. The entire city made out of gold. The walls of the city adorned with these precious stones. It's it's not that God thinks any less of these things or that he doesn't think they're beautiful. Apparently he does. He created them. But he puts them in the city as the construction materials of the city not to draw our attention to the materials themselves but to the God who made the materials. If the heavens declare the glory of God now, then this city is going to declare the glory of God then. That's what he is trying to do and trying to impress upon us. Now another benefit for us today is that can show us how passing and how fleeting are the riches of this world. 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have strayed after it, and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Going after material things, what a waste of time in the eternal perspective of things. Valuing the things that are going to perish as though they will not perish, and not valuing the things that will never perish as though they will. Eternity is the only thing that's eternal. That was profound. (laughs) Everything else is temporary. Right? And so the things that I can pursue in this life, apart from knowing God, serving Him, and loving Him primarily, are simply, if those are my main pursuits, a waste of time. And Jesus, of course, knew this better than anyone. He had come from heaven. He came to the earth. He became one of us. He emptied himself of all that he knew in the eternal realm and took upon himself a human body. We're going to celebrate the meaning of the incarnation this Christmas season. But he knows that which from he came. He knows what it's like. He knows what eternity is. He knows what things are like that never can perish. And so he comes here, and when he begins his teaching ministry, what's one of the things he tells his people? He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth nor rust neither of them can corrupt, and where thieves cannot break through or steal. Now here's the key to what Jesus said. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Pay attention to that. The Lord wants us to pay attention to that. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If my treasure is on the things of this earth, then that's where my heart will be. My heart is the passion of my life, the direction of my life. If my treasure is in a thing here, then I will pursue it. I will spend my time, my energy, my talents, and my treasure pursuing that treasure. But if my treasure is eternal, 
If my treasure is there, if that's what I want more than anything else, then that's what I will pursue more than anything else. In other words, if I want to change my heart with regard to priorities, it's simple to do. If I want to change my heart with regard to priorities, here's what I must do. I must simply change my treasure. Change the treasure, the heart changes. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the way it works. But I don't want to change my treasure. I like my treasure. The Lord will help us change our treasure, won't he? He will enable us. If we go to him and we say, Father, my treasure has been where it ought not be. I confess that to you. I've been living for things that I shouldn't be living for. I confess that to you. What is the first thing the Lord does? He, conf- he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness once we confess. And then, if we come after that prayer with another prayer that says, Lord, replace my futile, empty, narrow treasure with your treasure, with what's important to you. Don't you think he's going to do that? Don't you think he's going to? Maybe it won't be instantaneous. But the process will start instantaneously and will continue as long as we keep praying that prayer and having that as our focus. He'll help us. One of Pastor Johnny's favorite passages, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He quotes it a lot. With good reason. Because the Lord is the one who works in us to want what he wants, and he works in us to accomplish what he wants. He gives us the want to and the ability. He gives us the want to and the, and the ability, which is such a blessing. So we're encouraged just by looking at this city to live for things eternal and not temporal. And then in verse 22, what's the worship like in the New Jerusalem? Well, first of all, John saw that there was no temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The structure itself of a temple isn't necessary in this city. Why? Because our focus is on God himself directly. The temple was simply a place where God consented to dwell. Even Solomon, when he prayed in the dedication to the temple, he said, Lord, the heavens and the heavens can't contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Solomon knew that God wasn't going to live in that house. The Lord knew that he wasn't going to live in that house, but he consented to make his presence known at that place of worship in Jerusalem. He condescended to make his presence known in that place of worship in Jerusalem. And the Shekinah came down, that glory, the cloud. Everyone is in awe. And on the day of dedication, the priests that began to worship and minister in the temple, they had to stop because the glory of God was so strong and the cloud was so thick, they couldn't continue to minister because of the cloud and because of the glory of the Lord that was there that day. Well, that was the temple. But what if the Lord's presence is with us always in full measure? Right now, 
we see dimly through a glass. We can't see the full measure of the glory in the face of God because we wouldn't survive the experience. But then in our new bodies, in our eternal condition, with a heaven suit, our new body, that can withstand the very presence of God, we'll be able to see Him as He is in all of His glory and learn from Him as He is and as He teaches us in all of His glory forever and ever and ever. That's what it will be like for us. And since that's true, since His presence will be with us in that full effect, what need would there be of a worship house or a worship place. There would be no need. Not at all. No need for a temple. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Also in verse 23, notice that the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it and the Lamb is its light. No need for sun, no need for the moon. Why? Because the glory of God itself illuminates the city and provides plenty of light, more than could ever be needed. Now, just kind of rewinding back to Genesis chapter 1, some have had problems with the order of the days of creation as they've read through day 1 through 6 of the Genesis account of creation. And they said it doesn't make sense. Question the order of things. Because in day one, light was created, and the day and the nighttime were separated. But it wasn't until day three that the heavenly bodies were created, and the sun was appointed to rule the day, and the moon was appointed to rule the night. So how could there be light in day one when the heavenly bodies and the earth excuse me, the sun and the moon weren't created until day three. Where did the light come from? There's inconsistency here. There are, are problems with the days in the order of the creation account. Revelation chapter 21 to me completely answers that problem. If there is no need of the sun or the moon in the eternal state because the glory of God itself illuminates the city, then don't you see what happened back in Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Then God said, Light be! And light was. What God was doing, apparently, from this passage and what we know of his being, is he was allowing the physical properties of his own being to be exposed to the universe. He was just taking the wraps off of himself. And what happened was light went everywhere. And then later, he causes the moon and the sun to be particular bodies that would rule over the day and the nighttime of our present earth. The glory of God. How big and awesome is this God that we serve? No one is like him.
In verse 24, it tells us that those that are of the nations that are saved will walk in the light of this city. The word there is ethne, or nations, or Gentiles, in other words. The Gentiles of those that are saved. In this city, there will be three saved groups of people. There will be the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, who were born again during the church age, from the day of Pentecost until the day of the rapture. The church, made up of Jew and Gentile, living together in the body of Christ. Then there will be the Jews themselves as an entity. Remember, there are 12 gates, and there are the foundations and so on, and the names of the tribes are written there. So you have the Jews that are not part of the church necessarily, but people like Abraham and people like Isaac and Jacob and the rest of them, David. They are there. Israel is there. We're very aware eternally of the nation of Israel and God's covenant with his people. It continues on into eternity. And then you have those that are Gentiles who were not part of the church because they were saved before the church or perhaps during the tribulation period. They're tribulation saints. And they, of course, were not Jews. So the tribulation saints would fit in this category, and individuals like Ruth, the Moabitess, would fit into this category. And we're all there, worshiping and blessing the Lord, walking in the light of this city. And for us, verse 25, the gates never will be shut. Hard to shut those gates. They're big gates, and they're made of a solid pearl. But they're not going to be shut at all by day because there's no nighttime. And constantly, the glory and the honor of the ethne, the Gentiles, are being brought into the city. There's constant worship, constant glory, constant honor being given to the king. But nothing will enter into that city whatsoever that will defile, cause abomination, or cause a lie. The only beings, the only individuals entering into that city will be those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So no worries in eternity of any further corruption. There won't be any. There's no possibility of it. No worries of someone ruining our day. No worries about experiencing any kind of pain or sorrow or shedding any tears. These things are all a distant memory in the past in the eternal state. They're gone. They're gone. You see what we have to live for? This is what we have to live for. This life is in preparation for that one. This is a test. It is. This is a test. How will we do with what we've been given? Now, if you're like me, you're very aware of how far short we fall 
of the standard that God has for our lives. I am so grateful for the grace of God. I'm so grateful for the confession of sin. I'm so grateful for the new mercies of the Lord, which are new every single morning, doled out to us in 24-hour increments to be renewed day by day. I'm so glad for that because I need them. Very much I need them. And I suspect you do too. But all of this is a test. Will God's people get their instructions from him? Will they formulate their lives according to the master plan and the blueprint? Will they rely upon the person of the Spirit of God to live the way that God has called them to live? Those are the questions, and this is a test to see if that will happen. I like it. I'm up for a challenge. Because I know that in me, I can't do any of it, but I know he's capable. I like that kind of challenge. I love resurrection life. I love the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the fact that God is willing to reveal himself to us and illuminate his truth in my heart every single day. God has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. And it's never-ending. So this is a test. But it gives us a big eraser, lets us write only in pencil, And every day is a brand new day. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity you've given us to spend time in your word this morning. Looking at things eternal. And we've only scratched the surface. Our greatest words, our best efforts at explanation, are so shallow in comparison with the reality that we anticipate. They're like a shadow compared to what's real. We pray that you would burn within our hearts a love for eternity, a love for things that will never end, a love for living according to your commandments and by your power a love for worshiping you and a love for loving each other. Give us these things, we pray. And if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to make that commitment to Jesus Christ, we pray that this, this morning, today, would be the day that they choose to believe the gospel. And as we're in an attitude of prayer, I just want to ask you the question this morning. If there is anyone here this morning that has yet to make that commitment, you don't know if you're going to heaven when you die. You're not absolutely sure that when you die and when your spirit leaves your body, you're going to be in heaven. Why not make that right today? Why not accept Jesus Christ? Why not allow God to forgive you and give you a new start? Starting today, starting right now. And you can do that by opening your heart to Jesus and saying, Lord, I believe you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. 
I believe that you were buried. And I believe that you rose from the dead three days later. And I ask you to come into my life to forgive me. And I ask you to come into my life to make me a new person. If you ask him these things, he will do these things. Because Jesus said, Come to me, all you that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus said, All who come to me, I will in no wise cast them out. That's what Jesus promised. Is there anyone here this morning that wants to make that commitment? Would you just raise your hand right where you're seated? And I'd like to have a word of prayer with you. God bless you. The front row. Over there. Anyone else this morning? Let's stand together, shall we? Let's have a word of prayer. And I want to have you pray with me. Follow me in this prayer to receive the Lord Jesus. Father, I have sinned. And I have not lived my life for you. Repeat that after me. I believe you sent your son Jesus to pay for my sins. And I believe that he died so that I could be forgiven. I believe you raised him from the dead. And I invite Jesus into my heart right now. I receive you, Lord Jesus. Change my life. Change my heart. Make me a new person. Give me the power to live for you. And I thank you for it.